So uh, in this, in the pews this morning, I call them pews, a chair in a church is a pew. Um, I was eavesdropping because I'm better at that than actually conversing with people. Um, and there were a lot of interesting conversations about um, large groups of boys. <laughs> That's just part of, of some of our histories. And, and that kind of resonated with me because I grew up as one of five boys in our house, um, which has lots of demerits, but also lots of positive things. And one of the positive things is I always have a one of my other brother stories for pretty much any occasion. Um, uh, usually, doubly so if the occasion tends towards the obnoxious or embarrassing or just sort of ghetto. Um, <laughs> but So I have one of those stories for you this morning. It's a short one, but, but kind of sassy. Um, Stephen, one of my other brothers, once upon a time he was working for uh, an extended relation of ours over a summer for free. Um, and around noon, he takes a break to eat. He's eating. And this relative, whom... God loves, um, came and decided to sort of get on his case about over the break. And she's like, hey, what are you doing? And uh, this peeves him a little bit, but he plays it cool. And he says, well, I'm having lunch. And you know what? I'm enjoying it so much, I think I'm going to do it again tomorrow. Uh, so that's Stephen. Uh, large segments of our lives are comprised of familiar routines. Um, and that's not an inherently bad thing. Uh, routine kind of sometimes gets a bad rap in our culture. Um, and, and, you know, we want to lead exciting, meaningful lives, and a sort of automated, soulless rut is the exact opposite of that. So we can get anti-routine, but we, we get hungry every day. Um, and, and barring something unique going on, a fast, a famine, a, a crash diet, we're going to eat every day, even if that's routine. We're not too exciting to to avoid that rut. Uh, you know, we get tired every day, and barring something important like you're currently operating a motor vehicle, you sleep every day. Um, routine is part of our lives, and how you do it, how much you do it, why you do it, those things do matter, but a lot of our routines develop because they're necessary and important parts of just maintaining our well-being and happiness. So, if you've been with us at the river week by week for a little bit now, um, the biblical story which follows might sound a little bit familiar to you. Uh, after all of his crazies, uh, crazy adventures abroad, the Apostle Peter comes back to Jerusalem, and in response to some criticism from elements in the church there, he recounts the story of what all had happened during his most recent journeys. Uh, as we describe it, we might say he summarizes Acts chapter 10 to them. And Rather than going backwards and just trying to re-preach to you Acts chapter 10 as we go through Acts chapter 11, instead I want to focus on what in chapter 11 is unique, and that's the fact that it is a retelling. It's an answer. This is Peter recounting those events to the church in Jerusalem that needs to hear that story. And so that's what we're going to do today. In Acts chapter 11, verses 1 through 18, Luke, the, our author, isn't telling us what happened in that town in Caesarea. We already know. We read that last week. Uh, in most of our Bibles, the story's literally on the same page. Um, we're not learning what happened when God chose to send Peter to go and share the gospel with a Roman centurion of all people. Instead, we're learning what happens in Jerusalem when that bomb drops 
when the church there learns what happened and what Peter had been up to. So if you will, we'll go to Acts chapter 11, 1 through 18, and we'll read that together. Now, the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. That is God's word. The, the gospel is the central element of a Christian's identity and experience, And because of that, it is to the gospel that we must continually return. I'll say that again. The gospel is the central element of a Christian's identity experience. And because of that, it is to the gospel that we must continually return. This series in Acts, we've been building the series. I say we. I think I've helped twice. This is (laughs) Michael's labor of love. Um, But the series has been structured around a series of questions. We try to ask you a question each week that, that gets at the heart of what the passage is talking about. And this week, I want to ask you the question, friends, are you returning? Are you returning to the gospel? Are you continually returning day by day, challenge by challenge, Are you returning that basic truth, that that first love that if you are a believer, once upon a time made you a new creation? And and if you're not yet a believer, or if you are a believer, but but remain with some questions as you study, as you examine and weigh the claims of Christianity, as you get into those those theological weeds and those lofty doctrines, um, and you look at the reasoned inferences, and you examine the Bible's hot take on whatever modern issue it is that we're most curious about, uh, and all of those things, at the end of the day, after doing that work, after asking those important questions, and, and please do that work, but at the end of the day, are you returning to the gospel? that core element of the Christian claim that defines its believers' lives and identity. As we study in in some depth this passage today, I want to look at all of those verses we read, those first 17, in light of that final 18th verse. Uh, The one that goes, and uh, when they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Because I think 
that it is in res- that is in that response we hear from the Jerusalem church to Peter's story, it's there that we find the, the unique and powerful word that God has for us within this passage. I want to, to make the point to you that we must continually return to the gospel, and I think that in this story we'll both see why that's necessary, and in the church's verse 18 response, I think we'll see how it is that we do that, how we in practice and in function can return to the gospel. Um, why, both why it's necessary and how it's done, essentially. So, but before we get into all of that, there's, there's sort of a problem staring us in the face. There's a problem staring the church in the face, and it's what occasions this whole conversation in the first place. Why is Peter telling the story? Why are they even having a conversation? Well, we get that from verses 1 through 3. Now, the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. And, and it's hard, I think, for people in our very egalitarian and accepting culture to, to really appreciate the depth of this. Um, for, for the observant Jewish folks in the first century, this was kind of like, you went to a truck stop men's room and ate off the floor with crack addicts, level gross. Um, and not just gross, but like religiously offensive. Um, and, and we've talked about this in past weeks, so I'm not going to belabor the point too heavily, but there's this wall, this gap between obedient, observant believers uh, in God and the rest of the world. And for all intents and purposes, it looked like Peter was breaking those rules, that he was watering down the faith, tilting into heresy. Next week he's going to be on Oprah. Um, you know, Lifeway won't carry any Bibles in them with First and Second Peter in it. Like, it's descending into chaos, or at least it look, it's looking that way. Um, and so when Peter comes back to Jerusalem, they're like, Peter, what gives? And so Peter tells them this amazing story. Essentially, that's verses 4 through 14, how God just clubs him over the head with this vision that says, Peter, you don't get to call common what God has made clean. That's not your call. As Leviticus, there's this refrain in Leviticus, I am the Lord who sanctifies. Um, I make clean. I divide between the holy and the common. That's my job, not yours. And he hammers Peter with this vision three different times to make sure it sinks in. And, and angels are doing all the logistical work and setting up the meetings, sending messengers, arranging times and places. So if Peter is watering down the faith, uh, he's not doing it super willingly. He's kind of getting drug into this by God. He didn't set out to start a theological controversy. And so he, he, he explains what happened. He tells them how at God's insistence... He shares the gospel with these people, and, and he doesn't even get to the altar call. Uh, his, his guitarist hasn't even started the first few chords on Just As I Am. Um, the Holy Spirit just comes down mid-sermon, and God accepts and saves these people, even though they haven't first become Jews, even though they haven't gotten their acts together, or whatever it is that we're waiting for, God just saves them. And, and in telling the Jerusalem church this story, uh, of recounting this event, of sharing the gospel with others, Peter, in turn, confronts his hearers with the gospel. He calls them back to it. He reminds them of why they were standing where they were standing in the first place. And that was by the unearned, unmerited grace of God. And so they heard these things and fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. They hear the gospel. They fall silent before the gospel, and then they glorify God in response to the gospel. 
we see in this response how the church in Jerusalem was called back to those gospel roots that formed it. And so I want to look at those three elements in turn, hearing, falling silent, and glorifying God. So let's just dig into that. Um, we return to the gospel by hearing the gospel. That's, that's our first point, and it might just seem painfully, powerfully obvious to say that. Uh, I hope it's a little obvious. Um, if that shocked anybody, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but, but we return to the gospel by hearing the gospel, and I hope you'll bear with me even if it's obvious, just because it's the, often the things we know best, the things that we're the most familiar with, that we're the most likely to neglect. Um, the danger comes when, because we've heard the gospel once, twice, a hundred times, that we think we've got it. And, and what's interesting is this can play out in eerily similar ways, both for believers and non-believers, just in the sense that I've heard it, I understand it, and I'm done with it. And, and whether or not being done with it means you filed it in the things I accept folder, the things I reject folder, when it doesn't matter much in your day-to-day life, there's a lot of overlap in how your life looks, regardless of whether or not you've accepted or rejected it. It's a little like saying, I've eaten before, been there, done that, and I'm over it. It doesn't work so well. Um, and so it's, it's very easy for those of us who have been in or just around the church for a long time to see the gospel as that thing unbelievers need. Um, I mean, sure, it's important. Don't get me wrong. It's important. It's just not as immediately relevant to, say, a mature believer. Uh, <laughs> You know, it's, it's that juice box that you give to the baby heathens, um, but, you know, we drink our juice out of a glass because we're just that cool. Um, have, we, have we seen that? Have we felt that? Uh, never me, of course. <laughs> so, but this passage gives us a very different view of how the gospel operates. Uh, and it's not just, and this, this passage isn't alone in Scripture in doing that. There is this repeated theme throughout all of Scripture that all of humanity, including mature believers, need to constantly be brought back to a remembrance of God's grace through the hearing of it. They need to be called back to remember something that they're quite convinced they've got down, but have functionally, spiritually, and emotionally forgotten. Where do we see this idea in our passage? Uh, Peter tells the story, not just of what happened, but the personal story of his going through it. What's interesting is that if you compare these two accounts, because you see them side by side, Acts 10 and the first half of 11, Acts 10 is told with this sort of omniscient, uh, overhead, uh, eyes of God view, where the storyline is jumping between Joppa and Caesarea, Peter and Cornelius. You're seeing both sides of it happening in tandem, and it all comes together. And it's this great telling of what happened. Peter's version in 11, it's, it's the same story, but it's told in this more restricted, personal point of view way that, that lets you see it from Peter's eyes. And it's kind of a subtle distinction, but I do find it interesting. Peter tells you the story as he experienced it. It's a story of remembrance. Um... He tells about his vision. He talks about how when the Holy Spirit comes down on Cornelius and his household, that he remembers when that happened to him on the day of Pentecost, when it happened to the others. Uh, you, you get Peter remembering how Jesus told him how the baptism into Christ was going to be different than John's baptism of water. And so it's through all these events that Peter, that God calls Peter to remember the grace that he himself was shown. 
of his own uncleanness before God, and eventually he gets it. He has a breakthrough. Isaiah 49 is happening right before his eyes. That's that passage we, we read together a little earlier. It's, it's too light a thing that you should be my servant, God saying to Jesus, to raise up the tribes of Israel and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And so Peter speaks this gospel, this, this word of God's grace to the church in Jerusalem, and they hear it. They had already experienced God's grace, just like Peter, and just like Peter, they needed reminded of that fact. They needed to hear the gospel again so that they could apply its earth-shattering implications to the challenges, of, ahem, challenges and trials of the day. And you know how I know for a fact that we need to be called back to remembrance of the gospel by hearing it. It's because this day in our story, Peter is strong. He's feeling it. God's filled up his tank, and he is calling the church in Jerusalem back to the gospel, and, and big things are happening, and maybe people are rolling in the aisles. I don't know. But, but it's a good day. <laughs> and as we read our Bibles, though, we see that as time passes, there comes a point when Peter forgets this very lesson, this same guy who's calling back the church in Acts chapter 11 is forgetting it at a point in the future. And we see that in Paul's letter to the churches in Galatians. In, in, in Paul's letter to the church in, in Galatia, and what's interesting, this is a whole letter essentially about this topic we're talking about. Um, Christians forgetting the gospel, forgetting about the grace that they had received in Christ. Um, Paul tells us this story. So let's go to Galatians 2. We're going to do 11 to 21. That's, there it is. But when Cephas, and that's just another name for Peter, it's another way of translating his name. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Paul, in his, uh, in his harshest words... Uh, and I fear necessarily, shares the gospel with Peter. He calls him back to the gospel. The church forgets Peter, calls them back to the gospel. Peter forgets Paul, calls him back to the gospel. And we hear that Galatians story in the context of Paul writing a whole letter to 
a series of churches that had forgotten the gospel. Are we seeing the pattern here? It's super subtle, but I hope you're catching on. This is why, to some extent, you're going to hear the same message when you come here week by week. Um, We look at different parts of the Bible, and we apply them to our lives and their particular messages and and current contexts in ways that I hope are challenging and relevant. Um, But in some sense, we're forever standing with Paul when he says to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 2.2, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. We preach the gospel weekly because we're firmly convinced of the necessity and profitability of so doing. Because we need to hear this again and again and to be reminded, to be called back, to return continually to the gospel. And if we think that we're so mature we need to hear something different, may I remind you, Peter needed to be called back. Walked with, talked with Jesus, Peter needed to hear this again. Our spiritual ancestors in Jerusalem and Corinth and Galatia all needed to hear this again. They all needed to hear the gospel afresh. And so if you think you've heard the gospel message and it holds nothing left for you, I urge you, think again. Believer or not, the gospel is an inexhaustible source of riches. It's a, it's a wellspring of water that wells up into eternal life. And there may just be a facet of it that needs to catch the light of your mind in just the right way on a given day to capture your heart, either anew or for the first time ever. Now, and so in terms of applying this to our life today, um, just an easy one, let's obey Hebrews 10.25 and not neglect meeting together. Um, We're here every Sunday, and while we're here, let's hear the gospel afresh week by week. Uh, to, to paraphrase a quote by the, the famed theologian and pastor, Michael Johnson, um, let's, let's not try to get by on last week's or even last month's grace. Let's eat something fresh. Now, everyone I'm talking to um, presently, the magic of the podcast might change that, but everyone I'm talking to presently is here, so like, good work. You're, you're halfway there on this application point. You're already walking it out while sitting. Um, So that's good. Bonus points for you. Come back next week. Uh, Now, guilt David for not being here. Um, Point him to the podcast once it's up and be like, hey, buddy, you need to hear this one. Speaking the truth in love. Um, So just do that for me, please. (laughs) But, But is it enough to hear the gospel? Um, that's, the, that's the question that sort of follows from this. Okay, we've heard it, you heard, they heard, we heard. What did we do with it? What did they do with it? Plenty of folks who aren't Christians who don't believe, they've heard the gospel. And as a believer, you can hear the gospel week by week and not do a single thing with it. That's our, so this is our second point. We return to the gospel by falling silent before the gospel. By having our assumptions corrected, uh, our questions answered, Um, and our sins lovingly and rightfully rebuked. In verse 17, Peter just lays it out for them. Talking about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, he says, if God, then God gave them the same gift as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Peter grounds his argument in their own salvation experience. He's saying to them, guys, do you remember Pentecost? Do you remember when God saved you? He calls them to mentally return to their own experience of the grace of God. 
And this is all hearing still at this point. The church in Jerusalem had accepted the gospel. They believed Jesus was the Messiah. That through him, the, the broken relationship between them and God could be repaired. They believed that when Jesus came back, he was going to judge evil and set the world right. And as they're listening to Peter recount his story, the implications of the gospel suddenly go to a kind of uncomfortable place. They're okay with going to heaven. They're okay with the bad guys going to hell. But then suddenly they notice that the list of people going to heaven is a little bit more diverse than they had expected. They're letting Romans in. Those people suck. (laughs) It's like, I don't want to tell you your business, Jesus, but you know they crucified you, right? I'm just saying. Um, (laughs) At the end of Acts chapter 10, after the the mass conversion of all in Cornelius' household, Peter stays with Cornelius for a while. Um, That was one of the points Michael hit on last week that was was very powerful for me. Um, The core of this complaint from the circumcision party is that Peter has real close-up personal companionship and fellowship with these people. Because I I think the church in Jerusalem, even its hardline adherents, would have been okay with Peter walking up to the property line of Cornelius' house and just yelling at them, hey, Y'all need Jesus. Turn a burn, Gentile scum. Um, that would have been okay. Or they, they, if they had just become Jews first, like you're supposed to, and gotten their act together, they would have accepted them. Yeah, you were now, first you're Jews, now you're Christians. Come on into the church. Um, they would have been okay with all of that. But God takes these people who don't look like them or act like them and yet saves them in the exact same way as they were saved. And you have to say, well, what do I do with that? I was not expecting that. And so you could plug your ears. You could change the subject. You could quote from Leviticus again, this time in a louder voice. Um, But the church in Jerusalem doesn't do that. Instead, the church in Jerusalem hears that gospel word and then falls silent. They allow the gospel to correct them. And incidentally, this is the hardest and most challenging point in this message. We don't like to be corrected. It can be embarrassing. It can be humiliating or patronizing or offensive. Who are you to tell me dot, 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 fill in the blank? The thing is, for for believers at least, this is inside baseball in some sense. These are people who claim God's grace in Christ for themselves. Talking to other people who profess the same thing. Peter's talking to a church of people who believe the gospel and he's holding up one of the implications of the gospel and saying, yeah, I didn't like it either at first, guys, but there it is. When God decided to save people who didn't deserve it, he decided not to just stop with us. And so it is challenging. And far too often individually and corporately as churches... We won't fall silent before the gospel. We want to have our say. We might be inclined to tighten a gospel that we find too open, like the church in Jerusalem, or widen a gospel that we find just too narrow, as seems to be the case with many of our more modern churches. The sad thing about that, though, is that under either extreme, we're inclined to leave Cornelius and his whole household right where Peter found them either is unworthy of being saved in the first place or not even need of being saved in the second. After all, Cornelius was a nice man who did nice things for poor people. He even prayed he had a great spiritual life. Why would this man need to change a thing about himself? What kind of backwards intolerant belief system do you guys have? And somehow, the gospel confronts everybody, both sides of this divide, through this one old soldier. Even a man as good as this isn't good enough apart from Christ. 
Even a man as far from God as this is not too far because of Christ. And that's the gospel. Will we object to it? Or will we walk through and walk out the painful and difficult implications of this truth we claim to hold so dearly? Will we let it correct us? Those of us who are believers accepted Christ because on some level, we accepted the, the, what I feel is the patently obvious realization that God's right about things and we're probably not. Will we follow the truth into the dark places in our hearts where our prejudices and our idols fester unopposed? And it's something we have to ask ourselves because when we share the gospel with those who are far from God, we're asking them to do that same thing, to go to that same dark place. We're asking for them to make the decision to either keep going their own way, keep deciding right and wrong for themselves, or to fall silent before the gospel of Christ. To look at their life apart from God and confess they need the forgiveness offered by Jesus. They want the reconciliation and adoption offered by the Father. To look at their life and say that they want to put away the way they've been living, not because it's a rule God wrote, but because God has shown and offered them something better in Jesus. And I have to ask, can we prescribe that medication to unbelievers when we will not take it ourselves? So for us today, applying this, it might be an external thing. Maybe you have a brother or sister in Christ who needs someone who loves them, who's invested in their life, to come alongside them and in humility give them some version of the Galatians talk. Ask them how the gospel they cherish speaks into this or that area of their life that by all outward appearances is completely unmarked by God's grace. Tread with caution there. Um, Don't let caution become paralysis. Paul spoke up to Peter when Peter needed him to. But before we go external and just fix all those other Christians who aren't doing it right, um, (laughs) I know for me it's often internal. Uh, A few years ago, I I was confronted powerfully by the gospel, actually while reading the Old Testament law, um, if you'll believe that. Uh, Exodus and Leviticus, there was this thing that kept coming up, this refrain. It was how serious, like kill you dead serious, God was about Uh, not mistreating immigrants and widows and orphans. Not just like not mistreating them, but a positive and affirmative responsibility to care for the people least able to care for themselves, the people most likely in the coming society who would fall through the cracks. And that that was interesting in and of itself, but it was the justification for why God commanded this that just rang in my ears. God tells them, don't oppress the sojourner the foreigner, essentially, in the land I'm giving you. Because remember, that's who you were in Egypt. That's who you were when I found you and saved you. And man, that just hit me like a ton of bricks. And and I remembered the gospel of who I was when Christ found me. And I had a really uncomfortable series of moments uh, alone in my study thinking about how I had felt and how I had spoken about the sojourners among us. I was Peter in desperate need of Paul to give me that Galatians talk, and through the the word of God, I was able to have that. And by the grace of God, I was able to fall silent before the gospel, and I accepted the correction. And I tell you that, not to be the the hero of this short story, but to testify to you as a faithful witness, um, my friends, my family, my friends who are family, how freeing, how marvelous, how wonderful it was 
to have been wrong and then set right by the gracious word of God. It was absolutely humbling. Um, it wasn't fun, but, but Hebrews 12.11 uh, is telling the truth. It says, No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. So if we are hearing the gospel, but we're not seeing that harvest, that peace that follows that righteousness, I would urge all of us to examine our lives and ask if there's an objection, a storm somewhere in our hearts to, to bind or loosen God's grace. A desire which must, for our own sakes, fall silent before the freeing power of the true gospel. Because here's what follows. My, my personal story, uh, verse 18 in our passage, that Hebrews verse, it all goes to the same place. When we hear the gospel, when we fall silent and allow it to change us, to work on and in us, there's no other response left to us but to glorify God. So that's point three. We return to the gospel by glorifying God in response to the gospel. And, and this isn't in a sort of how-to sense, step one here, step two, fall silent, step three, crack off a few hallelujah choruses and you and God are good again until the next time you do something stupid. Um, it, it, it's more of a, a, a Newtonian physics thing. It's, it's, uh, it's popcorn instructions when step three is just enjoy. It, it's what happens. It's what follows. In Peter's story, he's showing the church how God has set all of this up. Angels are clearing Peter and Cornelius' respective schedules. Um, God is walking Peter through his personal objections. That, that He's softening his heart. He's getting him to that place where he can have the breakthrough. And God is saving people, and people are being called to remember how God and Christ forgave them. And the small and petty objections in their hearts are being let go of in the face of the freedom that the gospel offers. And they're staring this in the face, and they're not like... Fine, God can do what he wants. I guess there's Romans now. Instead, no. Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. They're in awe. They glorify God. Worship pours out of them because faced with the gospel, seeing what God is doing, remembering what he had done, hearing with their ears and letting it reach into their hearts, there's nothing else they can do and there's no desire to do anything different. They praise their maker, their God and their king. And if you are a believer, and this doesn't happen to you when you're faced with the gospel, if you don't go to this place of worship, run a diagnostic. There's a good chance that either what you heard was not the gospel or you did not let it go deep enough. Michael shared with us last week a quote from John Piper that, that I love. Uh, Missions exist because worship doesn't. And that's a, that's a pithy way of saying we spread the gospel because people are missing out on the peace and wholeness and fulfillment and joy that comes from worshiping God. And if we claim to have the gospel and yet aren't worshiping with any sense of our joy, then maybe it's time to return to the gospel and find out why we're singing. To have our hearts broken anew, to echo the words of the ancient church in Jerusalem and say, even to someone like me, God has granted repentance that leads to eternal life. In this story, and honestly with all of Acts, um, the presence and indwelling of the Holy Spirit is kind of shown to be the seal and signifier of this new age that God is just pouring out, where people are united, where they have fellowship and relationship with people that are completely different for them, but for that one single most important factor, that they've become children of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and church, that's no small part of why we gather together and worship every Sunday, so we can return 
that gospel. So this disseparate group of people can come together and hear that gospel. Let it confront and challenge and heal us. And so we can together with one voice praise and glorify the God who made us. The God who came as a servant to give his life as a ransom for us. The God who saw it as too small a thing to just save the people who were expecting it but instead went to the furthest ends of creation to seek and save that which was lost. When we're singing, that's who we sing to. When we pray, that's who we pray to. We worship an awesome God. And so, let's worship him in this room. Let's week by week with our songs, with our our prayers, our testimonies, and let's also do it in our homes when when we're dealing with our children, when we're dealing with our spouses. Let's, Let's love our families, not from our own power, but as an act of worship to God. I, I wish I had memorized which ones, but there, there are scriptures that talk about everything you do, do it as an act of worship to God. Let's love people out of the, the overflow of joy that we have in the worship of our maker. Or at our jobs, or just when we're dealing with the people that nobody thinks matter, or how we disp- decide to spend our time and treasure, may it be directed by the gospel and may it be for us an act of worship. So again, I ask my friends, are you returning? 1 Corinthians 15, 1-11. Paul calls back the very troubled church in Corinth. If you need to feel like your church has it together, read Corinthians. Um, he calls them back with these words. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-11. And, um, and in many ways, those words, they are they're personal and particular to the moment and time at hand, but I think they still speak powerfully to the ages. Um, but even so, even, even with their personal character, I, I really can't think of a more fitting way to close out our time together than by sharing these words with you now. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, although some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach to you, so we preach, and so you believed. Thanks and praises be to God. The gospel is not done with us yet. God is not done with us yet. And amen to that. (sighs) Father God, is there any limit to your goodness? Is there no end to your kindness? Is there any mercy or grace that you have not extended to your children? I can't think of any. God, we come before you in awe of the greatness of you and the greatness of your gospel. By your grace, God, we draw near to you and glorify the majesty of your name. We love you, God, knowing that you loved us first and loved us fully and that the worship we offer you is one of empty hands and full hearts. Because we have nothing to give you 
but what we have received from you. Grace upon grace, glory upon glory. So to you, God, we offer all that we have, all that we are, and we praise you forever in the name of your beloved Son, Jesus. Amen.